Today, our scripture reading comes from Genesis, Genesis 16, 7 through 16. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. The angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. So she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Thank you, Nancy, and uh, thank you always for a warm reception here. Uh, one of the underemphasized ministries and gifts that the church has is the ministry of hospitality. We don't talk about that one much, but uh, I always feel it and experience here when I come back to this church. God has blessed this church with the gift of hospitality. This seems to happen a lot when I speak. Half the congregation gets up and leaves. So. <laughs> I want to start today by, well, today, the message today is about perspective, so I want to show you a couple of slides, three slides to begin with. So in this slide, I want you to just look at it for a moment and see if you can find the baby. There's a baby in this slide, so I'll give you just a couple of, I'm not even going to tell you where it is. If you want to look at it again later, you can't find it, then um, you can look at it later. Okay, next slide. This one's pretty common. There's a young woman and an old woman. Can you see both of them? Okay, we've probably done this one many times. Next slide. Okay, this is a guy, but can you, it's a face, right? But what else do you see? The word liar, right? So you see the word liar written down. So it's a matter of perspective. What do you see when you look at something? Um, Another kind of perspective that we could talk about, though, is macro and micro, and this is really what I want to talk about today. If someone were to ask you a question, what is Beijing like, how would you respond? You could respond with a micro perspective. If you've been on a Beijing subway at rush hour, uh, Beijing is like looking at the wax in someone's ear. You're getting that close to people. But you could also respond if you're on one of those rare, beautiful days where it's um, like the air quality is at level 10 or something like that. And you're on in a beautiful place like this. You could say Beijing is a a very beautiful place. Everything is about perspective, how we see things. The story that we're looking at today from Genesis 16 is about perspective, how we see our circumstances. One of the key words in this story is the word see. And Hebrew storytellers didn't use any words indiscriminately. Their, Their writing was always terse. It was economical. And the key to understanding the stories that they wrote is to look at the words that they used. And in this particular story, the author used the word see repeatedly. It's not as clear in English as it is in Hebrew. Um, But before we look at the story, let me just put it in context. The story of Abraham basically runs from Genesis 11 to 22. 
And he relates to three primary characters in this story. So if you look at the slide up here, God, Sarah, and Lot. These are the three primary characters in the Abraham narrative. So the story begins, next slide, with a promise given, and then the promise is realized. God promises to give Abraham a son, and by the end of the story, chapters 21 and 22, the birth of Isaac, this son is actually given. But there's a lot of story between the promise and the realization of the promise. Along the way, Abraham twice jeopardizes the promise by giving his wife Sarah to another man, once to the Pharaoh of Egypt and then another man, the king Abimelech. And then, but to Lot, he's always the faithful brother. But the real interesting thing about this story of Abraham is what we're going to look at today. The story of Hagar comes between this affirmation or the making of the covenant between God and Abraham and the reaffirmation of the covenant. Just before chapter 16 is chapter 15 where the covenant is made. And in that covenant, God assured Abraham that his descendants would be numerous. They would outnumber the stars. At this time, Abraham's already an old man, has no kid. God has given him a promise of progeny. And the promise hasn't come. Of course, he's desperate. He doesn't know how this promise is possibly going to be realized because he and his wife, Sarah, are past the age of childbearing. But God says in chapter 15, I'm going to give you so many descendants that they couldn't possibly be counted. And then God performs this ritual with Abraham. And it's a ritual from the day of Abraham, so he totally would have understood it. In Genesis chapter 15, what he does is this. He allows Abraham to fall in a deep sleep. Well, first of all, Abraham cuts up animals, and uh, like a cow and a chicken and a, a goat, and he puts half the animal on one side, half the animal on the other side. So there's blood everywhere. And the ancient Near East at that time, the way that two parties would uh, f- be joined together in a covenant was, would be by doing this ritual. And what they're doing is they have the animals on both sides, half of, anim- half of each animal on each side, blood everywhere, and they would walk through these animals together. And what they'd be saying is, may I become like those anim- animals if I ever go back on the word that I'm making with you today, on the promise that I'm making with you. So it was a very, very sacred ritual. Well, in Genesis chapter 15... Abraham cuts up the animals, and then God puts him into a deep sleep, and in his sleep he has a vision, and God is walking through those animals, through through the the, the, the two sides of the animals. And in that, what he's saying to Abraham is, Abraham, there's no way that I could possibly ever go back on the word, the promise that I've made to you. This is God's covenant with Abraham. God had a macro view of Abraham's life. He, could see the, he made the promise. He could see its fulfillment. But Abraham and Sarah were trapped in this micro view of life, the shame and hopelessness of having no children. Having no child in those days was the greatest shame. It was like you had never existed if you died without a child. So they had this micro view of life, and it, it didn't look good. By now they're desperate. And so this story in chapter 16, the story of Hagar shows their very human and faithless response to a challenging situation. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul said, we walk by faith and not by sight. His meaning was our vision is always so limited that it can't possibly be trusted. And so he said, instead, we listen to God, who always has a macro view of things. We believe and we so order our lives. And one of our great tasks as disciples of Jesus and worshipers of God 
is to keep laying down our limited perspectives and choosing to accept that there's a loving God who sees beyond what I see. But what do I see? I see sickness. I see unemployment. I see my children's problems. I see marriage issues. I see extremists committing murder. I see planes falling out of the sky. I just cannot see the big picture. And because we as people so, so easily and so often vacillate between faith and walking by sight, we go back to our forefathers of the faith, our mother and father of faith, Abraham and Sarah, and we find comfort in the fact that we come from good stock. They did the same thing. No one has ever lived a perfect life of faith. There is no such thing, in my opinion, as a faith hero. We try to teach our kids that there are heroes of faith, but I believe that there are no... There are some people who are a little more faithful than others, but we are all unfaithful because of our blindness. We're all like that father in the Gospels who has to say, I believe, help my unbelief. And our moments of faithlessness and failure help us see what a mess we can make of things and motivate us to get on track again. You know the problem with the faith prosperity teaching, the teaching that says we should be healthy completely and we should be very rich, is not so much that it promises to, or it asks us to love money too much, which it often does. The problem is that it idealizes faith and it puts on us this hope of being a faith superman or a faith superwoman. There's only one true faith hero, and it isn't any one of us. So we can just put that aspiration off the table. We cling to our hero of the faith. So in this story, Abraham and Sarah, the father and mother of our faith, are vacillating. So the story revolves around Sarah, the wife, verses 1 to 6, and Hagar, the maidservant, verses 7 to 14. So each one of these ladies has their own story to tell, and they're Lessons are going to instruct us about the life of faith. So let's look at Sarah first, verses 1 to 6. Sarah had a plan. So Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Sarah said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. So the first words in the story are now Sarah. In the first half, she's the main character. So she controls these other two characters, her husband, Abraham, and the servant, Sarah, or servant Hagar. This is the first story about Sarah since chapter 12, when Abraham passed her off to another man as his sister, and so she became uh, kind of his wife for a little while. So now she's about to get revenge on her husband, Abraham, and she's going to back, the plan will backfire horribly. So she's introduced as Sarah, Abram's wife. The narrator wants us to know that. The storyteller didn't have to tell us that. It's a fact. We knew it. But this word Isha, wife, is used to make a point that she is Abram's wife. Because in a moment, we're going to see some confusion around this fact. Now, verse 3, I think there's another slide here. The literal translation of verse, there should be, yeah, yeah it's 16.3. Um, is this. It starts, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her Egyptian servant, and then it's the middle clause that says, Abraham had, been, Abraham had been living in the land of Canaan for 10 years, and the third clause, she gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. So this is kind of confusing. As identities are being confused, it's like the storyteller has written us, written, written this story in a way that's also kind of confusing. In God's eyes, Sarah is the one. She's the one whom the seed will come. 
And in fact, chapter 17, when God reaffirms the covenant in the next chapter, he will say those very words. But in verse 2, Sarah had come to a conclusion based on what she could see. It was what philosophers would call empirical evidence. And she spoke it out to her husband. She said these words, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Now, it's not a foolish conclusion by any means. She's in her 70s by now, for goodness sake. It's a conclusion that was obvious. So she can't see what God sees, and she feels the need to take matters into her own hands. She chooses to control the situation now based on her microvision rather than relinquish it to God who has the big picture, and she's completely going to mess things up. Here in the middle of Abraham's story, right in the middle of Abraham's story, God gives us this lesson. He wants, to, he, wants to, he wants to show us that all he requires of us is to hear his promises and to live by them. Listen to him and rest. Listen to him and rest. Listen to him and rest. But how often are we tempted in our microvision to control? A few years ago or several years ago, our friend um, Dina in Hong Kong Her husband walked out on her. Actually, it was on Christmas Day, and the day after their third child was born, he walked out on her for another woman. And uh, Dina went to the Lord in prayer, and she believed God spoke to her that her husband was going to come back and that she would take him back. And we spent probably, what, four, five, six months with her. We were with her often, and she became like a walking concordance. She memorized almost the whole Bible. And uh, she listened and rested, listened and rested, listened and rested. Meanwhile, she's trying to take care of these three kids, one who was just newly born. She didn't contact her husband. She didn't work at the relationship. She read scripture and she prayed. And within six months, he came limping home, the subject of God's extremely stern hand of discipline. And he said these words to me, God has made my life miserable. I have to go back to my wife. God's promises are God's promises. They are for him to fulfill. But verse 3 shows us this dysfunction of the situation. Now that middle clause kind of seems out of place. Abraham had been living in the land of Canaan for 10 years. But 10 years is a long time to wait for a promise that was impossible to believe to begin with. You know, those of us who have complained about sitting in traffic for a half hour can't blame these guys for becoming a little less than patient with this promise. So she gave her maid to Abram as a wife. And what the storyteller is telling us is that Sarah is messing with the system by making an Egyptian maidservant into the wife of her husband. It's going to turn out bad for all of them. Go on, verse 4. And he went to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong be done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. And Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. So verse 4, the follow-up begins. She conceives, and immediately, Hagar conceives, immediately she hates uh, Sarai. Did she protest to being treated as a surrogate? We don't know. But Sarai, in turn, 
becomes angry with Abram. And she blames him for the fact that Hagar hates her. Now, this is the part of the story that's really confusing. Did Sarah forget that it was her idea in the first place? She decides to mistreat her maidservant, Hagar, at this point. The Hebrew literally means to humble her, to keep her in her place. She's just a servant. She's not the wife of my husband, even though I gave her to my husband as a wife. She might be carrying my husband's child, but she better not forget who she is. Nothing good can come out of trying to force a solution to God's promise. Hagar can't stand Sarah. Sarah's upset with her husband, and she takes it out on her servant. You guys, this is the mother and father of our faith. This first couple of faith. They seem so callous to us, but it all reveals their blindness. They just can't see what God sees. At this point, that word see is introduced to the story together with the word eyes. It's not so clear in English, but Hagar sees her situation. She despises her mistress in her eyes. Sarah is told to treat Hagar as is right in her eyes. But her evaluation of Hagar is going to prove to be very different from the way God sees her maidservant. She complained to Abraham, may the Lord judge between you and me. This word judge is mishpat, the one who enforces justice. The only person in this story who is going to receive an advocate is Hagar, the one who's mistreated. So it's a story of failure. Right in the middle of this wonderful story of Abram's life is this story of failure. To show us that the life of faith truly is difficult. Walter Brueggemann comments on this story. He says these words. Faith is not easy. It calls for a persistence which is against common sense. It calls for believing in a gift from God which none of the present data can substantiate. The life of faith is a life of faith. We take two steps forward and one step back. It's based on something we cannot see. And our failure doesn't alter God's plan whatsoever. In fact, on the contrary, God somehow in his wisdom incorporates all of our failures into his plan. Something that we're going to see in a moment with Ishmael. Okay, let's go to the second part of the story. So Sarah had a plan, but Hagar ran, her seven. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. So in verse seven, the scene shifts. Hagar becomes the main character. She's run away from her cruel mistress. The angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the desert. And that location is a picture of Hagar's life. It had become a miserable desert. And the water of God's grace is going to be found there by her. The angel addresses Hagar, verse 8. And look at what the angel said. The angel says, Hagar, servant of Sarah. He affirms her identity. Sarah had given her to Abram as a wife, but she's not that. She's a maidservant of Sarah. This is who you are. God knows who we are, even when life has tried to make us into something else. The son, of, the son is a son, even if he's a prodigal. God knows who we are always. He's the one person that knows our true identity. And the angel asks Hagar a question. Look at the question that he asked, the angel asks. Where have you come from, and where are you going? Now, she's going to answer the first part of that question, but not the second. She's going to tell the angel that she's running away from her mistress, Sarah, and all she, that that's all she can tell him. See, now she's alone in the desert. She's pregnant. She has no place to go. She's burned her bridges. She's trapped. It's a dead end. 
She has no answer to the question, where are you going? Like us, Hagar had, like we often do, Hagar had hit a dead end. And we can answer that first question often, where have you come from? But often we have no answer to the second one. And we can't answer that question. God wants to answer it for us. Paul said at one point in his life, I think I have a slide here with this. Paul said that he had given up so completely he was about to despair of life because he had been given, he thought, a death sentence. But he said these words, it was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and will deliver us again. On him we've set our hope that he will deliver us again. So the angel now answers the second part of Hagar's question. And he says these words, return to your mistress and submit to her. Hagar, I know this is going to be hard for you, but you've got to trust me on this one. I've got a plan for you. I've got a plan for this child that's in your womb. Return to your mistress and submit to her. And then he offers her a promise. Actually, we'll go on to a couple of slides later. He offers her this promise. It's verse 13, I think, Lynn. No, there we go. Is that? Yeah. Well, the officer, the promise of a lot of a de descendants. But here is the point that I really want to come to in this message today. The angel of the Lord all... Oh, no, go back to 13. There we go. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Hagar referred to this God as the God who sees. Truly, I have seen the one who looks after me. And this is the one thing that differentiates in this story Sarai from Hagar. Now, Sarai would go on to play an important role in the biblical story of salvation. But at this point in her life, she lacked the eyes to see the one who saw her. And without a vision of God, she felt compelled to take the matters into her own hand. Hagar, on the other hand, alone in the desert, pregnant, no, no future, received this vision of God, and that made all the difference. Because she saw God, she could return to her mistress, she could submit to her, and she could bear this child. One woman lost her faith, at least for a little while, and felt she needed to take matters into her own hands. The other found faith through a vision of God and saw that life truly was in his hands. I've seen the one who looks after me. And if you've heard nothing else this morning, I hope that this is the confession that will be on your lips as you leave this place. I have seen the one who looks after me. Some old friends of ours, Jim and Barb, lived in Arkansas. And a lot of years earlier, Barb's grandfather had uh, ran a Bible school in Arkansas. And for years, the school had been abandoned. Um, the buildings were in disrepair. The property being, had been taken over by others and... Uh, about, I think, uh, seven, eight years back, Jim and Barb felt that God speak to them separately, that he wanted to restore this property for, the, for his kingdom. And so they felt led to buy the property where Barb's grandfather had this Bible school. So they purchased it, and they began to train missionaries there. But shortly after they purchased this property, Jim was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, 
untreatable in his case, and the doctors gave him just a few months to live. <laughs> and amazingly, Jim and Barb discovered that the last two men who owned that pro- who ran the Bible school on that property had the exact same illness, and they died of that illness. Shortly after his diagnosis, Barb was then diagnosed with breast cancer. And they went back to God, the God who sees them. And he reinforced in prayer with the knowledge that their lives were in his hands. They felt encouraged. They kept pushing through. They raised money to buy the property. They worked on the buildings. They started conducting training programs. Jim lived for several years beyond the diagnosis of a few months long enough to complete the task that God gave him of setting up that training school, and then he went on to be with the Lord. Barb is cancer-free, is continuing the work there. But at that point, they saw the one who looks after them. See, as people, we can only possess microvision. We can only see today. I know we do our corporate planning times and all these things, and we look into the future, but we can only see today. And if our circumstances are great, we're happy. If they're the pits, we're, we're sad. But we have no idea what's going to happen when we set foot outside the door after church this morning. If you could see the future, what would you do? Well, you'd certainly buy a lottery ticket, the winning lottery ticket. You'd make a decision to not board a certain flight. If we could see the future, we would protect ourselves and we'd promote ourselves at all costs. There's only one person who can see the future responsibly, and we are not that person. God does not invite us to have a macro vision ourselves because we couldn't handle it. He's the only one who can handle it. But if we truly have a vision of him, the one who sees, we don't need to see beyond tomorrow. The fact is that he sees, that he knows, and that he loves And this is completely sufficient. He possesses the macro vision. And he asks us simply, the very simple thing he asks us, ever since the father and mother of our faith, Abraham and Sarah, until us today, 2015, he asks us just to trust him. Have you seen the one who looks after you? Our God, this is what we ask, the Apostle Paul ask for the church that you would open up the eyes of their hearts that they could see you and so for us as your church today we ask that you would open up the eyes of our hearts to see you and certainly within this church family of several hundred there are some who are going through very very difficult things you see what they cannot see particularly bless them with the gift of faith open up the eyes of their hearts in their own pain to be able to look upon you, the eternal, faithful, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, and to help them believe that you will never, ever forsake, you'll never, ever abandon them. Thank you for your deep, ongoing kindness to us. We've said it to you many times, and we affirm it today, we certainly aren't worthy of it but you've loved us because you've loved us because you are love. Gracious God, thank you. Bless all of us to be able to see you well today. And through this week, help us to practice cultivating this, the eyes of faith to look upon you. For the glory of our Lord Jesus, and in his name we pray.